Okay, so if we can make this roughly analogous to like a rock and roll era, you'd say that he was like, so rock and roll has started, but now Macho is, as he's born and growing into it, are we in like the 60s, like the Beatles developing, or is he like even earlier? I don't know if this analogy think, works. I'm trying it out. I think he's, I think he's the Beatles. Yeah. He is the Beatles. I think he is. And whereas like Perotan would be like Elvis like or something. Elvis and doo and stuff. It's like it's getting there, but it requires a big revolution and um like a new means of expression where a lot of things have to be shaken up so i think my show is the beatles oh wow i think it's pretty iron that's pretty uh, <laughs> airtight case for that that's awesome um i don't know yeah but that's a pretty good analogy so he's growing up in this things are changing times they are changing but he's yeah. not bob dylan but right Things are changing now. And this is what he's growing up in. Yes. So do we know if he grew up in a church or do we know how he first got connected in music? Because you said he, he was uh, lower class or he didn't have yeah. as many opportunities. Do we know what his connection started to be? Well, he was interested in being a, a clergyman um, fairly young. He was ordained in, we think, I think we know he was ordained in 1323. Oh, so he's 23 years old. That's pretty young. Yeah, or maybe 20, maybe a little younger. Maybe and wow. and um, he had various appointments. They, I think they changed a law that made it so that he couldn't have so many um, and collect salaries from different places. Ah, uh, yes. I'm going yes. to be doing an episode on uh, John Whitcliffe pretty soon. Oh, nice. And that's going to be a, a major part of it. Yes, I believe that is called um, pluralism. Yeah, it's a big no-no, but apparently yes. he participated in that also, huh? He did. He did. And when they cracked down on that, um, he ended up settling as a and being canonized at at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Reims, um, in France, which is the place where, which is an important place in this period of history, which is where the kings got. Uh, crowned ceremonial ceremonially oh that reminds me i need to uh, make a correction on last episode with louis the ninth i said it was olean but it's not it's rums that's where they're crowned yes okay think, yeah at least at this time i know all right so my apologies on that if you caught it you're very smart congratulations and this is not this notre dame cathedral a beautiful gothic one which looks like the one in paris is not to be confused with the one in paris uh, okay. um, the center of, of western music and really the birthplace of western music can be said to be like perotan and and that sort of thing and um but then it quickly shifts here in the next 150 years later now it's in in Reims and it's with Machot at least for his for his um sort of illustrious lifetime so when he ends up there is this before or after he serves with that um king of bohemia after after okay um, but he did still have other posts um serving other royalty so he he sort of made it he sort of made it and became sort of a famous guy. Do we know how he made it? Like, was there a specific piece or a specific event that happened where all of a sudden it's like, oh, love me do or something like that? Uh, well, no, not really, because he, um, well, if there was, it was probably poetry and not music. So, uh -oh. because he was all, he was just as respected in his time for his secular poetry, and, um, and also that, and also for basic, for kind of revolutionizing poetic form. Um, in French, and he revolu he he was greatly admired by Chaucer, for for example. Oh yeah, I and I heard they possibly could have met, although we don't know for right. sure if they did or not. Right, we don't have evidence, but they but it, the timeline makes sense. Like he traveled a lot, Macho did, and it's possible they could have met. He he um, he also was an influence on Christine de Pizan. Ah, uh, which is an upcoming episode, also. That's a good tie in there. Thank you. Yep, and um, yeah, so he he was. 
so it's maybe not one event, but a snowball of his of his lifetime. And it also helps that he travels so far around. People are hearing about him all over the place. Yes, He's he, he was very well way. traveled, and I think that was really a lot of it. A lot of it was just that King John of Bohemia business. Who he was that was only the first part of his life, but it was so it, be, it made him the world the worldly person that he was. And um, but then his his major religious works, his music, his sacred music. It was a little bit later in his life, and that comprises two big works. The one of which the, mo- the important, the most important one we're gonna that we're focusing on now, um, which is what we're about to get to. So, well, real quick, I have a question. Yeah. Um, do we know much about his? Well, particularly his faith life. Like, do we know much about it? I know obviously he does this uh, sacred music. Does he ever write anything, any sacred poetry or anything like that, where he lays down some of his um, faith? He's pretty he's pretty silent on his own theology. We don't have a lot. We have a lot of his we have a lot of his poetry on the black death, on courtly life and courtly love. We have a lot of of the sacred poetry um and then all of his masterful sacred and secular um music. But we know he was basically all we know is that he was he was like a lot of people in his time. He was both he was both very much in the secular troubadour world, but also a very devout church musician. Right, and I suppose at this time, most people in Europe, if you are a committed member to society and you live in Western Europe, you are at least to some degree taking Christianity seriously. Right, because that's right. what well, basically everyone is. Yes, exactly. But Machaut was actually this this uh, the tie-in here is that. We know that Machaut was particularly interested in, in and had a great deal of love for the the mass um, itself because of the way he purposefully revolutionized it. So um, while we don't, while we sort of wish we had more of his his candid writings on this stuff, we have so much of his other stuff that sort of makes up for that. Got it. All right. So we're with him in. Wrong. Uh, how do I say that again? Yeah, Rans. Rans. It's yeah, tough to say French like stuff. That. So he's there. Now he's become pretty well established. He's spent his time with the King of Bohemia. People know him for his poetry. People are starting to know him for his music. And this is the point where he's he really revolutionizes the sacred music, right? Yes. And and so this is this is where we get to the the centerpiece of of the music of the sacred music that we talk about when we talk about Machaut, which is the Mass of Notre Dame, the Messa de Notre Dame, which is around 1360, and it is a—it's not an exaggeration to say that it is a monumental piece of music in Western uh, music history, but also de- definitely sacred music history. So, okay, so if we're going to continue our analogy, is this like the White Album or is it Hey Jude or something <laughs> like that? Yeah, one of those. Okay, not one of those later ones. Gotcha. Yeah. So. So they're already developed, and now they're like, now they're like, hey, this is actually what we can be do. We've been doing good stuff, but boom, this is the big deal. But actually, the great little um, sort of problem with the wonderful little little anachronism there is that the the whole idea of an album suggests that there is some sort of cohesive, maybe cyclical sort of musical arc that ties stuff together. 
in, oh. in a lot of albums. You know, before this, people um, were just releasing singles. That's what you're saying. Yes, that is what I'm saying. <laughs> and um, and yeah, in in 14th century terms, before this, there was no such thing as a unified musical composition by one person ever. So when you say a unified musical composition, you mean like beyond a song? Yeah, a big thing, a, big a large thing. work. Yeah, got it. So there were settings of of the mass um, that were just sort of piecemeal by different composers that we would people would take together and and perform, um, and there were collections of things, but there was no um, there was no like large piece of music, multi part work by one composer until this this work but what about hildegard i know hildegard had some but i know some of her work was just lost for centuries yeah hildegard as always i think is maybe a little bit of an interesting exception to this rule <laughs> um although her music was not poly polyphonic in other words it didn't have more than one part it was all one line right so surely there has to be it the it's a fine line because you could create a big book of poetry and then set it all to one mel to a, a, a repeated sort of melody. But that hardly counts. Um, it hardly counts. But I mean, it, I don't know. It could count if 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 it had like repeated musical ideas, you know. Yeah. So that could be true. But um, but at least Machaut's Mass is is known as the first complete setting of the Mass ordinary attributable to a single writer. So this is saying it's the whole church service, basically, is, well, all the ordinaries, so all yes. the regular things, they're all done by one person. So up to this point, they had them before, but they were all written by different people. Right. And that's why we um, that's why we set up earlier the idea between ordinary and proper. Perotan, vidurum dominus, is a, is a proper. Um, it's a section of a church service. You can only do it once a year, in, in other words. So maybe maybe a little more, maybe just once. So you get this choir to learn this really hard thing. And they can only use it once. Surely that that happens yeah, all the that's time. A yeah, it does happen still when we do like Easter, <laughs> Easter or whatever. But but still. But then Macho is thinking, and not the first person to think this, but he he's thinking. Well, if I write, if I write a setting of the Kyrie and the Gloria and the Credo and the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei, um, then we can like use it all the time. <laughs> so that's so efficiency. It was brilliant, and um, and he was the first one to write something so that that was also like musically cohesive it kind of hangs together as a composition it has all five parts of the ordinary plus a sixth little ending motet which is a little song a little sacred song um, but it's it's the last latin line of the mass which is ite misa est which means um which is the dismissal uh. which is like it's done the mass is over so literally that's the mass or something like that so <laughs> so that's all folks yeah and that's uh, actually, composers in the Renaissance don't set the Ite Missa Est for whatever reason, but yeah. but everybody um, does the other five, the yeah. good ones, you know. Nice. So let's listen to a little bit of that. What should we be listening for as we listen to this? Yeah, so um, this is Ars Nova music. Without getting into complex music theory, the, basically the there's a new style of rhythmic notation. You can now notate more interesting and more snappy sort of rhythms. You can do faster things. You can everything kind of sounds like it's together now. Whereas in Perotan, you heard that clearly that tenor voice was isolated. Now right. there there is a tenor voice, but it's a little bit hidden, and the other three parts are very um, almost seemingly equal in importance to it. You're going to hear another um, 
you're going to hear another low voice. You're, you're hearing what, what you'll be hearing. It's not always easy to tell how many number of people are singing, but you're going to be hearing four parts. And um, there's also this this wonderful little invention called hocketing, which... Mm, um, it doesn't sound nice. Right. It's like, it literally means, um, or it means, it's taken to mean hiccuping. And it's this little um, sort of offset, little bumpy, short little rhythms that you'll hear in the top part and it's kind of it's a very iconic of this period like when you hear music that has that in it it's very much 1300s um something that that sort of came from this period that's that's what you can listen for for th- this would be this will be the beginning of the Kyrie, the very beginning of the Messa de notre dame all right let's check it out So that was pretty awesome. I can see why people were crazy about this. Yeah, we're starting to get into stuff that sounds like really cohesive music now. Like the parts sound are fairly equal. We can hear that there's different voices. The the polyphony is complex. In other words, the multiple, all of the different parts really have their own thing going on. They're going in different directions. The sound is still like rather stark and open. And it's that hallmark medieval sound of music that's um it's not very sweetly beautiful yet and that's because this is this is before there was sort of an influence from the english later around closer to 1400 so Monchot didn't wasn't there for it and that was called the um english countenance the the countenance anglaise composers from england interacted more with with France, mainly via war, but also right, just the other years war happening right now. Right, right, but for but f- the result of that was that the continent, the in France and also in the in the Flemish regions, which would later become the big, huge music, the, the creative place of music in the Renaissance, in the High Renaissance, that all that all was sort of sweetened up from England, and um, so if you play music now, you know, and you play chords, for for example. You, you play um, harmonies that are made of thirds. Like you might play notes that are like two notes apart from each other. And so you'd play thirds. That idea was not really common yet in the time of Machot. Machot is mostly open fifths and they sound much more stark and they don't sound, um, they don't necessarily have the same happy and sad qualities that we attribute to music that has chords in it. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, because usually later. a minor happens with the third, right? You have the minor third is generally where we get. Right. Like now, now if you play, if you were to play like a, a piece of music that is in a major key, it would have a particular upbeat or happy quality to be very general. And then minor maybe being sadder, again, being very general. But before this, music was much music was much less pinned down. There were many different modes. And before that still, the English, if we go back to Macho, the English hadn't even come over yet and given their particular take on thirds yet. And that's why this music sounds very sort of hollow in a lot of respects. So it's a very early period in music history. But it's already... It, even though it might be hollow, it's already gained so much complexity just from what it's been 150, 200 years before. Right. right. It, there, this, is, this is like the almost the peak of a little swell of complexity in music history. I think that goes great into another thing that you want to talk about, which was the, the pushback. Oh, yeah, yeah, because not everyone was like, oh, we love Machot so much. He's the greatest. People were like, no, the Beatles are the gateway to hell, and you're uh, you're going straight to the devil if you listen to that rock and roll, because rock and roll leads to sex and drugs. Exactly, right? exactly. And um, and Macho would have been accused of that throughout his, throughout his life for sure, because he wrote so much secular poetry. But um, but the analogy still works great because um, a little bit before the mass of Notre Dame. Um, in the earlier part of the 14th century, the Pope at the time, the Avignon Pope, the Pope that was in exile. Oh, yeah. Which I know you're going to get Don't to. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll talk about You'll that later. Yeah. So a Pope, there are multiple at this point. Right. Um, and this was John the, the 22nd, and he uh, issued a, a papal bull on church music. And this is the, something that's happened many times since also, where he said, the style of music today is getting a little bit out of hand. And could you all please just go back to the normal chant, maybe a little bit of organum, and that's it. As I mean, God intended. Yeah, as God intended. Yeah, God did not intend um, polyphony. Right. <laughs> yeah, God did not. God does not like hocketing. Right. So. And hopefully you heard that. That was. That was yeah, funny. that was. <laughs> I love it. It's such a great little way to tell that you're listening to medieval music. Um, but yes, these. This is way too sexy for the church. This is too much. Right. Rhythmically, especially, because that's always what it is, isn't it? It's always the rhythm. Like here, it, it was, uh, it was these these funny hockets or whatever other interesting rhythms, but also the complexity of the voices against each other. It's like, why can't we just have plain chant? Literally plain chant. Why can't we have chant? Right. Um, so that's it's definitely true of this papal bull but it was ignored by a lot of people the, <laughs> including Macho. yeah including Macho. um <laughs> the paris notre dame school was very in line with it and i think you could still do stuff kind of like perotan where it's like okay you can do some ars antiqua stuff but none of this ars nova new way of writing music mm-hmm. n- none of that but um but it was mostly ignored by Macho. plus he was a little bit later than that pope anyway so it was much like um there was a similar, there was a similar document in the Catholic Church, at, in 1903, I think I'm getting this right, where which prized um, earlier type of church music, musics as well, and then that was, and then the pushback came, and then the church, the church went in the other direction for Vatican II in the in the 60s. So it's happening all over, right? All throughout it's just the history. constant thing. Oh, yeah. I think it probably happens in every church ever. Right. We like clinging to the old rugged cross. We don't want that new crazy stuff. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure yeah. what the newest one would be, but yeah, it still goes on. Exactly. 
and then people eventually realized that it works in church music and it's then, not all ben right and that's what happened with this right this pope it, john the 22nd he does this bull but he doesn't last that much longer he dies and the new pope comes along and the new pope does not share john's right thoughts right um yeah it's it flip-flops back and forth a lot but i think the real miracle is that even throughout even with that and with the actual black death and a lot of people dying in europe and a lot of wars that macho actually was in and all this stuff he still managed to survive it into a fairly old age and that's why we have all of his stuff um sort of against all odds in a way right and the black death that's in the 1340s am i getting that right and the uh hundred years war that goes a long ways um but that goes in a couple waves, and an interesting thing I discovered is Machaut might have helped write a treaty that at least put a pause on the Hundred Years' War. I uh, don't know for nice. sure, but it is possible. He's, he, he is sort of a, a figure that attracts a lot of interesting, like, legendary things. <laughs> um, not to say that that may not have been true, because it very well could have been. But he was a very, like, well-traveled guy, so maybe it did. Maybe it was. It's also worth saying real quick um, about the message in Notre Dame that it was... It was that flowery, florid stuff that also turned people off and made them think it was, it was um, vulgar because like oh. that that Kyrie, it's just it's Greek and it just it's just Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, and you repeat each three times and that's it. But the whole thing takes many minutes because he he draws mm. it out out and out. And even though the Gloria and the Credo, which have a lot more words those he he sets them a little bit more straightforward the text just kind of goes but still there's like amen sections that are very that are very um very flowery and, and is he the first one to make this so flowery well a, i guess no the, he's the, not but the he's the first one to make a he's the first one to make so flowery of a continuous musical work that mm. that is its own full thing so yes in a way he's he's the first so Macho, he's lived this full life, and we only barely talked about his poetry, which was a huge deal. He was a big influence on courtly love, which we will be talking about more with Christine de Pizan. So he's gone through his whole life. He's done all this. One of his final acts is compiling all of his music together, mm -hmm. right, yeah. in this big tome. Um, and then, uh, what, he dies? Yeah, yeah, he, he dies a, a famous and mostly wealthy and successful uh, church musician yeah and he's remembered but but like as we've said many times by now he's also equally remembered or at least maybe in his time more remembered for his poetry. for his poetry right and yeah. he's, he is always pushing the envelope and as we'll see with Christine de Pizan who's a writer and a poet she will um, work a lot with his themes and with his styles as he sits out a bunch of styles in poetry kind of like he does in music. He's just yeah. a big deal all around when it comes to the arts. Yes, he he started it's not it's not really a stretch to call him the first composer in a lot of ways and it's definitely almost objective to say that he's the the composer of the 14th century but also maybe any time before that, although that's being a little unfair because they weren't the idea of the composer was new. Right. But yes. And this, uh, that's a good segue. How does he pave the way for all these future composers? Um, who are his direct influences? Who are people that pick up the torch after 
my show. Yeah, so the first one is, um, the, the big one would be a composer by the name of Guillaume Dufay, or Dufay, and he's part of the Flemish school. And then, so this is getting late medieval, almost early Renaissance by this point. By that time, he takes, so he, he directly takes from Machaut's mass. He takes the idea of the mass using the ordinary, just the five parts. He leaves out that sixth last part. And then he adds, he, he makes the contratenor voice into a, more of a bass voice. He kind of, I think he still calls it the contratenor. So now you've got a tenor, a voice that shares its range, that doesn't sing the melody, but sings sometimes below it, and then two voices that decorate above it. So it's a direct descendant from Machaut. And then um, from then on, you get all these Renaissance composers, and then eventually the um, the parts become a little bit more equal, and the the recognizable melodies that you would know and love from, from church are being heard in all the different voices here and there um, in very in very beautiful and oftentimes very complex counterpoint. And this is all straight from Machaut because especially all this stuff with um, all this whole idea of a mass, a setting of the mass that really holds together amongst its five ordinary parts. Because um, I shouldn't forget to say that it wasn't, you could reuse this, Machaut did, but it was also intended for one specific mass. It was intended for the mass of Our Lady. That's why it's called the Notre Dame mass. Uh. Um, so... I'm not saying that the entire church service consists of these five highly complex um, poly- polyphony things. I'm, I'm more saying that they did they did still chant other propers of the day, like you do the psalms and things like that. Right. But this is this is now finally a unified. We're doing this mass. We're right. not doing all these different parts. This is a whole unit on its own, and that's going to be a standard thing going forward for centuries. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Up until. Like, up yeah, up until yeah the Baroque period, basically, um, it's the it is the expression of of Western music all the way through the Renaissance. This and the height of it, the biggest form of it is the Mass, and and, and all those things that surround it. And actually, that is the intro and outro music of my podcast and right. all these episodes is uh, William Byrd, and I believe he's in the late 1500s, early 1600s. Yeah, late Renaissance. He's but, doing these same things. But exact same concept, and that's a direct line to, back to Macho. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Right. Well, thank you, Macho, for yeah. uh, giving me my intro and outro music. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, my last question would be, is there any aspect of, like, um, standard church music, and I guess secular music, that affects us today that we might hear, I don't know, every day? What would be, like, the two or three biggest things? Like, you, what we love about music, we owe it to Macho. What would be a couple hmm. of those things? I think we owe practical church, practical, beautiful, intricate church music to Macho because he made it. He made it usable. It's still hard, but it's still usable. We owe, in a in a really big way, we we owe the entire idea of a unified musical organization of a church service mm-hmm. to Macho. Yeah, we we owe. I mean, a lot of a, a lot of the joy and fruitfulness of contemporary or modern church music is in congregational singing. Mm-hmm. So that has actually maybe improved 
um, because we were dealing with a period of history in Macho where it was so everything was very restricted. Oh, and it Pe- was specialized. It was so specialized to be able to sing and to be able to speak or read at all, maybe, or um, or to have access to the Bible, which was probably in Latin, right, um, and not translated to your native languages. Um, which we'll get to soon when we get to John Wycliffe. Yes, yes. So Machot couldn't help us there, and our other reformers did instead. But but Machot helped. Machot is the icon of church music because he basically started it in in many ways. We we a lot of people posted when the um, the Paris Notre Dame Cathedral uh, was in flames that 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 the birthplace of of Western music was in flames. That's pretty true because Perrotin and and those guys. But it would be equally as true to say that it was Machot that was the most important of at least 100 years of his time. That is fascinating. Yeah. And maybe I did just think of the connection. With those cathedrals, they were so beautiful and intricate and ornate in ways to uh, glorify God. And they're being built at the same time. Now music is being used to be intricate and complex and glorifying God in these same ways with new techniques in kind of a parallel way. So yeah. Instead of flying buttresses, you have hackets. Right. And and it's not that these increasingly complex things need to always be like self-serving and glorify their creators. And Machot wouldn't have liked that either. If we would have, I think, I think he was devout enough that if we, if he heard us saying that he was the first composer, he would, I mean, he knew he knew he was an important guy, even in his <laughs> lifetime. He wasn't one of those that, like, like J.S. Bach, where they would never know how much they've meant to everybody on on the planet. Um, they didn't know how famous they got. Like he knew he was he knew he was a big deal. But um, I don't know if he would have if he and his contemporaries and the people after him would have even liked the idea that we were classifying them as brilliant composers because they were just humble church workers. You know. Nice. Well, thank you very much, Christian. Appreciate yes. it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I think we'll have you back next time we do uh, some other uh, composer, which I guess we'll have to do Bach at some point or something yeah. like that. You have to do J.S. Bach because he was the, the single greatest ever. Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm happy to be back for any, Sweet. any of the musicians. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. This is a little bit different, but I had a lot of fun. So I hope you did too. Next episode, we'll get uh, a little bit back to normal. We'll be looking at Christine de Pizan, who, as we noted before, is majorly influenced by Macho. Um, yeah. Thank you guys very much. Don't forget to uh, like the Facebook page or also leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whatever you're listening this through. And as always, tell a friend. Thanks. See you guys later. See ya.